There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so the next thing that I read, um, PJ, is called Sidelined um, by Susan Salinger. And this is subtitled, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. Um. So I got a nice copy here. And again, this is pretty short, 200 pages. You can read it in two days, right? But it's it's basically um, split into various chapters where it discusses different issues around women's health and how women deal with it. Um, yes, there's some distinctions between women's health and men's health, but but mostly it's around, you know, how do we talk to our doctor? Do we, do we not put ourselves first? Are we too focused on our family that we're not prioritizing our own health? And then it finishes with a chapter all, all about history going way back to the past, back to Athens and, and the medieval times and right up to the modern day. So it's very, it's very interesting. And Susan wrote this, I suppose, to help women really who maybe have had health issues or haven't dealt with them just to kind of get a perspective on that, you know? Hmm. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So, well, that's very, again, very necessary, like the kindness book. He's yeah, again, very, again not, a, not a novel, but a nice one to, that might help people, you know? You seem to have read a lot of necessary books for for like just to help the side. So I think I I just felt like sometimes um not not everything can be Duma, you know? Sometimes we need something that helps people in their day-to-day life. And And Duma isn't really helping. No, he's not. Ah, two seconds though, PJ, because I I think I hear the phone ringing. Just just bear with me. I'll be back in a few minutes. Hello, you're through the books, boys. You've got Dean on the line. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Sue Salinger, and I am the author of Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. This is what it looks like. I don't know mm-hmm. if we're, I guess we're on there video. We Thank you. Um, took me about 10 years to write the book because I did a lot of research. Mm. Um, and it was just a very enjoyable experience. I talked to about 40 or 50 women with different diseases to see what, if anything, what behaviors they had in common. And I was able to isolate five or six things that women do or decisions women make that really do us a disservice. Mm -hmm. So that's what the book is about. It's about the hurdles women have to jump. I mean, you can tell it took a long time because, you you know, the, when I first looked at it, I thought, OK, it's a small it's a small book, you know, but then I look <laughs> right. at it. Oh, there's a lot of research in this. There's, you know, there's there's a lot of um, references and cite- citations and things. And right. of course, you spoke to all these people over a period of years. You went back and spoke to a couple of them then at the end of the project to see how they were getting on. So it right. looks like a lot of work went into this. A lot of work did go into it. And I found much to my surprise that one of the things that women do is that we put ourselves last when it comes to our own health. Mm. There was a study done where researchers gave women a list of of five things to prioritize to see, you know, what they would care for first. And the first thing we take care of are our children, then our pets, if you can believe that, (laughs) then our parents or significant others. Then our, our, I've forgotten, oh, our significant others. And then five, I mean, last, every woman put themselves. themselves. So the, the, the children, I suppose, doesn't surprise me. Putting the pets before the significant <laughs> others is an uh, interesting one. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, let's see. I don't think I'm feeling so hot, but my poor iguana really needs to go to the <laughs> And, you know, that did that surprise you or was that what you thought you would find? No, it actually, it did surprise me because the reality is you can't take care of others unless you're feeling good. I mean, if you're feeling like crap, how are you going to help other people? I mean, yeah. it's really, even the airlines tell you to put on your own mask. I was about to say that. Yeah. Help yeah. yourself first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it seems self-evident. So yes, I was surprised. I really was. Yeah. Um and I think that that really does us a disservice because something that is not serious, if we wait long enough, could become serious. So that's yeah. not good. And that is, I mean, that is something that you, you do mention in the book. It's not not dealing with things on time. 
um, right. and putting right. off going to the doctor. You've, you're busy in the house. You've got the kids, whatever. The next exactly. thing, your issues become twice as bad as it would have been if you if yeah. you set the time and prioritize yes. yourself. You know, and that's right. So that that is interesting. You know, and the first, I mean, you go through the chapters, but like there's one chapter, the very first one after you. So that's talking about that. It's about the fact that yes. they don't put themselves first. And that's, that's a shame. I mean, let's, let's look at this. What do you want people to take from this? So for, for a woman reading the book, you know, what do you want the takeaway to be? I want the takeaway to be that even though we think and we do frequently take charge of our own health, we have to do even more. We have to feel empowered. We have to have the courage to question our doctor, to get a second opinion. Women hesitate to get second Mm. opinion. Men don't. Women do for a variety of reasons. And we have to have the, how can I just say the guts to say to the doctor, listen, you know, what else could this possibly be? I need to get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of, a lot of I guess just courage and it's you, you want to be empowered. It's your body and you yeah. really need to take care of it. That's the message. Mm. The second opinion was interesting to me because with the health service that we have in the UK, typically because we're not, we're not paying, right. we don't, we don't see it as a consumer thing. So right. I think we just go in and we, we take the doctor's word for it and it would never occur to us. Well, I'm, you know, I'm buying a service. I want a different opinion or something. And I think that right. we would be even maybe less likely here to ask for that's a second opinion. You know, that's that's a cultural difference. Yeah, because in the states, uh, men do get second opinions much more readily than women. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I'm sure this is true in Ireland too. But we're brought up, you know, to play nice and not be rude, and we don't yeah. want to hurt the doctor's feelings. And what if he gets angry and then labels us a bad patient and mm-hmm. or hysterical, which women still get quite a bit. Uh, one that surprised said, me to read. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I was surprised too, actually. Uh, you know, it's just it, it's difficult for women to do. Mm. And also in, in here, it takes more time. It means another trip to the doctor. And I'm sure. assuming you have transportation and the financial resources and access to doctors. If you live in the country, you may not. Exactly. Um, but let me, let me ask you something. Do you think that a woman is more likely to ask for a second? You know, if the, if the doctor is female, do you think that makes a difference? I don't know. Uh, yes and no. And I'll people <laughs> ask that all the time. And actually, there's so much research on whether w- women should go to women doctors or men doctors. Uh, and there's a, there is a difference. And the, the jury's kind of still out. Um, women doctors just have a different practice style. Mm-hmm. They do talk more. So you, you may talk, be yeah. like, yeah. They spend more, more sort of yeah. average minutes yeah. per session yes, they talking. Do. They absolutely do. And a man doctor, a male doctor is much more, um, I guess, biologically oriented. He wants to know about your symptoms and it's much more business-like. Mm. So in a certain sense, it depends where you're most comfortable. I mean, if you're on your lunch hour and you want to get in and get out, you need to go to a male doctor. Sure. If you have time and you really want to establish a relationship, uh, a female doctor may be better. So it really just depends. What you really want in a doctor is competence, and you also want to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. If you're not comfortable, you won't talk about your symptoms. You won't ask questions because you're not comfortable. Another big takeaway I had was you mentioned that similar to the, the women doctors being more open to having a longer conversation the female patients are actually spending a lot more time, I guess, with a preamble before they say what's wrong. They're giving how it's affecting them in the house with the whole right. lifestyle. Right. Whereas the male patients kind of come in, here's the problem. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, and, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the male patient will go in feeling like he's part of a team where in the, you know, he, he and the doctor are going to solve this. Yeah. But uh, the female patient doesn't do that. And I honestly think that the different conversation styles, which incidentally are so evident that when <laughs> a bunch of cancer patients were given, asked to write letters about their experience, and then the letters were submitted to a bunch of, of interns. Mm-hmm. And the interns were able to tell which let most of the time, over half of them, which were letters were written by women and which written by men. Yeah, that surprised people, me. Yeah, it did me too. <laughs> Frankly, it did. But the females were, I mean, the women's were just more vivid, more full of feelings, mm. more more involved, more, it just was a, a whole different uh, level of, of 
I guess, feelings. And I think that that's part of the problem because I'll, I mean, I don't know how you are when you go to the doctor, but I'll go in and I don't know, let's say I have a sore throat and I start, I'll tell them my throat hurts or her. I mean, of course I will. But then I say, you know, and I'm really tired and it makes it so hard for me to drive the kids around and I can't do this. And I've got this thing mm. to do at work and I'm so stressed all because I don't feel good. And my sore throat gets kind of lost in the morass of all of these yeah. emotions. And I think it lends, it, it can, mess up the diagnosis it's it seems that yeah unless the doctor is is expecting that or is aware of you know that that he might need to pick out that information um particularly with as you say with a male doctor whose communication style might be different there's misdiagnoses and or or delayed diagnosis and that's a right. problem you know yeah it's better to go in with just a list of your symptoms i mean not that you shouldn't talk about your feelings of course you should mm. You just want to make sure that you focus the interview and control the interview so that you get what you need. You're not there because it's hard to drive carpool. You're there because your throat hurts. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Another thing that surprised me was the turning inward chapter about basically that women are sort of blaming themselves almost like, and you talk a little bit about almost a, it's almost a moral aspect. And you, you know, yes. um, we go back historically to this idea that, you know, if you, if you've gotten ill, it's some kind of punishment and that that kind right. of mentality to, to maybe a, an extent still lingers a little bit. That's, 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 that's interesting. Well, and that was actually the thing that surprised me the most mm. in all of my interviews, because I don't get that way. Yeah. When I get sick, I get pissed off. I, a shame doesn't even occur to me. I'm just, I get enraged. I mean, it's ridiculous, really. <laughs> but what, what I learned was that a lot of the women base, blame their illness on, on their stress. If I had just taken more naps or if I had exercised like I should, I wouldn't be under all this stress and then I wouldn't have fallen ill. So what happens is because they're blaming themselves and their stress, they see their illness as almost a public manifestation of their inability to manage their lives. Mm. See, I'm sick. I can't manage my life because I, I'm under so much stress. And I think what I, another takeaway that I really want women, well, and for that matter, and men, um, illness is random. I, I mean, certainly stress contributes to illness. I'm not in any mm. way saying it doesn't, but it isn't the only reason. Yeah. I mean, some smokers get lung cancer and some don't. And some alcoholics get liver disease and some don't. I mean, I tell the story about my father-in-law who ate nothing but red meat, smoked cigars every day, never exercised. And his blood pressure was never as high as yeah. mine. And I do everything right. I mean, go <laughs> it, you know. There's an element so, of luck in that as well, or, or oh, randomness. And genetics. I mean, yeah. there's all kinds of things, really. Yeah. I mean, I've been under tremendous stress at various times in my life, and I don't get sick very much. Why I wrote a book on illness is a whole different story. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's the question that I, I was going to ask you next. So, because you put a lot of work into this, why did you start to do it? You know, what, what motivated you to undertake the project? Well, my lack of courage and empowerment, I had a very unfortunate experience where I had been taking some hormones for menopause and all that stuff. And the doctor said, there's some new hormones on the market. Why don't you try them? And I, sure, you know, not a problem. So I took the new horm hormones and then I started some vaginal bleeding, which of course scared me to death. And I wanted to go back on my old regimen. And the doctor said, no, 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 no. We have to do all kinds of tests, which he did and everything was fine. So then he said, well, we need, you need to have exploratory surgery. Something's not right. And I knew he was worried about ovarian cancer. Mm. That's what he was thinking. And I was a younger mother with young children, you know, and I, I, he, if he had been right, he would have saved my life, but he wasn't right. Wasn't. And I knew that it was, I just knew it was the hormones because I know my body and I'm susceptible to medications. Mm. So as they're wheeling me into this freezing cold operating room, I thought to myself, woman, what were you thinking? Why are you here? What in the world? Why am I here? It's ridiculous. Yeah. So anyway, I had the surgery. I was fine. There was nothing. I went back on the old hormones, as I said. And then I just started talking to other women to see if any of them had made decisions that they regretted. And I, I think I said I talked to 40 or 50 women and almost all of them had at one time or another messed themselves up in that way, done themselves a disservice. And so that really led me to do some research. I, I, after I talked to these women, I extrapolated the five or six things that they all had in common and then did some research to see if there was any literature, you know, backing up, backing yeah. all this up. And there was a ton. 
Um, that's what took me 10 years because there was so much. There's a lot, a lot of, <laughs> and I, yeah. had to go I, I would have preferred there'd been a lot less, you know. <laughs> and then near the end, my favorite part, actually, because I, as a historian, you know, I studied history in university and, and Greek history, especially you do an unfortunate history. And we just we get a little recap of like these kind of problems with women's yeah. health throughout time, starting with ancient Greece and through the yeah. medieval period and Renaissance ah, and right up to the modern yeah. day. Yeah, I love yes, that. I, th- I loved it. I just <laughs> loved it. And I think that the, our history, women's history with the medical profession is really a pretty unhappy one. I mean, and it transcends cultures. So the Chinese called, called daughters maggots in the rice. And the Dutch had a proverb that a house full of daughters was like a cellar full of sour beer. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be Greek or Egyptian or whatever, you know. But they, women's bodies have just always been considered pathological. Uh, they're the reasons our, our, our reproductive systems are the reasons for our inherent instability. Um, with they it's really been a very unfortunate very unfortunate history and i think that part of the problem is that some women have internalized this and i think that it's framed the way we think of our bodies in the present we 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 just think we're aristotle called us mutilated males yeah (laughs) that's wild yeah yeah i know it's wild and so I think that we think of ourselves perhaps as poorly designed, you know, and we, we need like a, a refresh, you know, just want to push a refresh button. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's really contributed to some some of the things that women believe about themselves, their bodies, their illnesses. You can't really, uh, James Baldwin once said, you know, we carry our history within us. It's present in all that we do. And I think that that's true. Yeah. Um, I wish we could just dump it, but you can't, you know. And is there going to be another book or is that, was this, you know, you wanted to do this one book and that's you? Well, I think there may. I'm just toying around with a couple of ideas. I was going to do maybe something on women and, you know, illness and shame. But Mm. Brene Brown has just done a great, some great work on that. So I don't know if I want to even, I think the field may have been covered. Right. And I also want to do about the invisibility and the loneliness of illness. I don't know how much more time I have, but one of the things I, I really discovered, I put together a couple of focus groups because I wanted some geographical diversity. And in the in the focus groups, none of the women had ever talked about their illness with anyone other than their doctor. And that also kind of blew me away because I mean, yeah. I'll tell everybody and you want ask me how I am and I want to go, you know, how much time <laughs> do you have? You know? But these women hadn't said a word. Wow. And so I was very surprised yeah. about that. Um, they were so happy to be in the focus group and meet other women, although with different diseases, but still similar issues. Mm-hmm. The book is really talks about the behavior of, of women much more than the illnesses. Um, okay. It doesn't focus on the particular mm-hmm. illnesses only because there's a ton of books on that. Sure. Um, good ones that there's no point competing with. Mm. But so the loneliness and the invisibility of it really fascinates me. And that's, that's probably where I'm going to go. But I'm so busy marketing this one. I haven't had a chance to yeah. do this yet. Well, why don't you market it for us now? Where can where can people go to get this book? You can go to it's available at Amazon in the UK, and it will be on. Um, I think it's May 26th. But it's it's available in the states now. You can go to my website, which is susansalinger.com, and that's S A L E N G E R dot com, and it gives you all the sites where you can buy the book. Cool. I'll put so a link anyway on the in the show notes. Oh, thanks. And, and you've got a lot of books behind you by the looks of things. It's got a full bookshelf there. <laughs> well, I I love research. I just love it. And these are actually journals, Journal of Women's Health, right. Sociology of Illness. And a typewriter. Are you do you do you write on the typewriter when you're writing? No, 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 no. This is an antique typewriter oh, that my okay. daughter gave me for my birthday. I think it was almost from the 19, early 1900s. Wow. And my husband traced it back to to the original owner. I mean, it was really fun because we were going to give it back to them. We thought maybe they would want it oh nice yeah no they said we could keep it lovely there to remind me that i don't have to type anymore (laughs) i love my computer it's fabulous well susan it's been a pleasure to have you and as i said i'll put a link in the show notes to your website and uh, hopefully people check out the book thanks for calling in so much and stay out of the rain (laughs) i will stay out of the rain (laughs) thanks all right bye-bye all right bye-bye well there we go I did not expect that, but Susan Salinger herself ringing in there and having it's a wee cra- chat about sidelines. It's crazy the coincidences that happen in this in this podcast. The so frequency is startling. 
Uncanny, I would say. Uncanny's definitely the word. I mean, like, I, I just don't know what Ibsen would say to the whole situation. I think he'd be highly impressed and be inspired to write one last play. Maybe. Goodness. Our good friend Henry Gibson, as I, as I thought <laughs> Henry we, were, Gibson. we were going to review. Henry Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Gibson. Good Lord. Guys, um, I should quickly mention that our sponsor for this month, in addition to our friends over at Dentistry Pals, our other sponsor is, of course, the bookorganizers.gov. To avoid Dumas-related book confusions, um, bookorganizers.gov, just get in touch with them and they will inform you of what you're actually reading, whether it's part of a two, three, four, five, or six-part book and which part you're reading and what the subtitle is, because we know that Very for nice, two months sir. in a row, there's been some real confusion about, uh, about Dumas. I- including a forgery, right? Including someone who wasn't including a forgery writing. as well, <laughs> just to make it <laughs> that even... you really enjoyed. Ironically, you thought <laughs> yes. it was great. <laughs> the forgery is better than what I read this month. Yeah. <laughs> Well, very necessary because when I talk to Dean, it seems that if he's not reading Dumas, he's literally spending just as much time trying to sort out, find out which Dumas book, <laughs> even if it is Dumas. Yeah. So that's all I get is, yeah. So nice when you time. get a 350 page Dumas and you think, what can I read? 50 pages a day, 100 pages a day. Okay, let's say you set aside a week for the book. You need to set aside a second week to figure out what is the book, you know? Also sponsored uh, in this month's episode is theplace.gov. Check your citizen rights even if you live outside the mountain. So it's very important for people who don't live inside the mountain called the place to check out the human rights. Very practical uh, charity organization. Uh, you know, um, I think that the person running it is called Hans Jans. Very confusing, mm-hmm. but there it is. It, that website's my homepage. I'm there on a regular basis. And, indeed, yes. Indeed, very important. Good Lord. Stop the bus, as my grandmother would say. Stop the bus. Tom, very specifically. I wonder who Tom was. Might have been Tom Jones from Fulfilling Love. I'm not sure, uh, but that's what she uses. Well, Tom's to. a good chap. So, Dean, happy birthday, first of all. You didn't mention that. That's right. So we got people saying, like, we were saying last time, oh, it's episode 18, you know, we've become men. And the joke was people would say, well... That's very unlikely you would both have your birthday at the same time. But actually, within the last week or week and a half, we did both have our birthdays. <laughs> yes. Well, no, just literally uh, last week, right? That's last week. You yeah. had it on Wednesday, so, I had it on Saturday. Happy birthday to both of us. We are, we are both birthday. 30. And happy birthday, Shakespeare, as well. Don't forget that. Uh, or maybe just happy death day. I hope you had a nice Aww. death, Shakespeare. Hope you had a nice death, love, uh, PJ and Dean. That kind of card you could have sent uh, old Shakespeare. <laughs> Anyway, and what I read for my birthday, I decided to take something intuitively, decided to take something that I, I just didn't know much about. And there was this book that I had bought years and years ago. I can't remember. I was just sorting out through my books. And I thought this seems something that I might like. I do like my children's books. I've, I've been writing some children fiction, I would say. Um, so something I'm interested in. And this book is called A Monster Calls. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna be honest with you. One of the best books I've read ever in my life. Ever? I'm wow. Be honest with you. Yeah, really. This is amazing. It's uh, by Patrick Ness, but the idea is by Siobhan Dowd or Dowd, and Siobhan Dowd. She died of cancer, and she had this idea that she couldn't she couldn't write uh, anymore. The story out. So Patrick Ness, who also wrote children books, they're both children books authors. Uh, wrote it. He just got the idea, but he did write it completely by himself. It features a boy um, who's basically struggling to come to terms that his own mother is dying of cancer. So that's what it's about. Um, so very, very poignant because you know you know from the beginning that the one who came up with the idea was a woman who died of cancer. Mm-hmm. And it all, the book is about how, how to deal with cancer, I suppose, um, in a loved one, especially the mother um yes so it starts off with conor o'malley he's 13 years old and he's been having this a nightmare um the past few months the one was the darkness and the wind and the screaming you never know what it's about he wakes up and at exactly 1207 midnight a voice is calling out and from outside his window all you can see is a graveyard with a yew tree um, protecting it. So a yew tree is um, a tree that is famous for, for its poisonous berries. 
Um, so, and he kind of looks out and all of a sudden this tree has come into life and it's a huge monster, a humanoid tree talking to him and just calling his name. And he says he wants the truth, Connor. He wants the truth. And he says that he has come from the earth. He has walked into the earth for him. And he rarely does this. Um, however, the surprising thing is Connor is not at all frightened. In fact, he is literally said in, in the story, disappointed. And the monster, because that's what he's known as. He's just known as the monster, the yew tree kind of person. Um, it's just confused. And he tells him that he's going to tell him three stories and that the fourth story should be Connor's own story that tells the truth. And so that's all, basically. What happens is the, um, the next morning, there are leaves inside uh, Connor's bedroom, but he thinks, ah, oh, it just blew in from the wind. And he kind of said, that's just a second kind of nightmare I'm having. At least it's not as bad as the first one. And we get to know the mother and... Um, interesting thing about this book is it's really obsessed with the mother figure. I would say the mother is the main protagonist, even if she doesn't talk as much in the book, because every single second line seems to be about the mother's illness, and everyone knows about it. Everyone talks or better doesn't talk about it, and she's basically dying, and he's not accepting it, and she's going through chemotherapy, and it's all very detailed. And Connor is alone. He basically is not friends anymore with his best friend because she, uh, she kind of told everyone that her, his mom had cancer and she regrets it, mm. but he just doesn't want to talk to her. So, and the dad has left years ago. The grandmother seems very pushy and the, and the more vomiting and being sick and going to hospitals. So all he really has to engage with is his monster who he's not sure even exists. You just think he's going, he's dreaming it up, becoming mad. The story it tells three stories because the monster visits every night and for a while he visits and tells him a story that basically, like the kindness book, is there to tell you uh, how to treat other people in a very non-Disney way, though. The stories are violent, kind of contradictory, unexpected twists. The tree monster is not really at all a benevolent figure. That's not at all ever implied. He is, he enjoys bashing things up and enjoys causing havoc. He's essentially just nature, like just just like the sea can be kind and can be can be mean. You know, that's yeah. what he is. That's what I love about it. That's what I love about it. So it's a more realistic kind of monster who is, for some reason, telling these stories are there to help him. And bullying plays a big part in. It. He's being bullied by this one uh, boy. But basically, the interesting thing about this is, is that the bully is really his only friend. It's the only person who's engaging with him, even if it's violence. But it becomes clear that the bully is kind of there as a lesson to bring him out of his shell, because the boy is essentially, the main character is essentially shell-shocked. And without spoiling it, the third story turns into something physical, which the boy actually acts out with the bully as a sort of a revenge. And it okay. becomes very it's fiction at that point. It's it's very it's that's that's quite gruesome. And the fourth story at the end is the boy telling the truth, and the nightmare that that was mentioned at the beginning becomes a big thing here. And the true monster appears that is inside the boy, and there's something in it. He's not trying to. He doesn't want to say it's it, the, book, the book is about that. There's something inside of you that you want, never want to accept. There's a cruel part inside of you mm-hmm. that you don't want to accept. And it's his own monster. And he's been cultivating the monster and the monster is powerful. And basically the, the moral of the story is that you may, you may have bad thoughts and dreams and there might be a mean part of you, but it's not what you think. It's what you do. It's your, the action, how he ultimately, what he does at the end of the novel without spoiling is what is way more relevant than what he thinks about doing in his dreams and his nightmares that he doesn't want to ever verbalize. Okay. So the, the, the tree man helps him, helps him um, cleanse himself from his own self-hatred. He has a lot of self-hatred. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now this, this book is, is, is super powerful. It's very gripping. Um, it's been a long time since I've been really gripped like that is a novel uh philip pullman um from his dark material sure. series has 
has really uh, um, said a fantastic book, compelling, powerful, impressive. It's been um, turned into film with Liam Neeson <laughs> voicing the tree. So I, even though I don't like adaptations, I think that sounds actually very interesting. And um, it's, it's a great, it's a powerful book. It's not even a children's entertaining book. It's like the kindness, like it, it feels like you can just learn something out of it mm-hmm. and use it in your practical life. Sounds and like you really read some beautiful. very good stuff this month, PJ. Yeah, no, I enjoy that. I admit that it's been very heavy stuff, I suppose, but in the same time, it's been, it's been all very gripping, including the Ibsen stuff. Yeah. And about society and about life. Now, if you want the lightest one, the one, well, the only one really suitable for your kid, at least, it's a monster called. And the other ones are also very powerful, but through adult stuff. So Monster Calls for Kids, for, for adults, this is just a great read with beautiful prose, just beautiful minimalist hmm. prose. Amazing. Cool. Well, the next one that I read, PJ, and I'm almost done, the next one was another Balzac. Um, so I'm, I told you I've got to get through as many Balzacs as I can while I've got library oh. access. And I read I The did. Marriage Contract. Do you know this one? No, I don't know. What is it? Well, this one is, so first of all, I should mention, it has little cameo appearances from characters from Ogorio. So like one of Gorio's, um, there's, there's actually three stories in this book and some of them have cameos. So one of them is a cameo from one of the daughters of Ogorio, um, for example. And just, just little characters popping up or a little reference here and there to someone, you know. Um, but there's, there's three stories and I'm really only going to focus on one. That's the, the marriage contract itself. It was fairly short, it's only 200 pages. So whoever compiled this volume included two extras just to beef up the volume. One was La Grenadiere, which is only a 30-page short story about these two boys and their, their sick mother in, in this little lovely house. That's, there's really not much that happens, it's 30 pages. And the last one is called Gobsec, and he's a usurer who you know lends out money. And that's a, a novella of about 90 pages. And he's kind of lending out money and he's not really a nice chap. And it's a fun little read, but it is pretty short. There's not really a whole lot to talk about. Mm. The one I want to focus on is the marriage contract itself. Okay. Mm. It basically, we have this chap, Paul, whose dad raises him to, you know, be good at uh, sports and horse racing and, you know, do the typical gentleman sort of education. And off he goes and he's got a bit of money, a bit of family money. That's fine. And he meets a nice girl called Natalie. Um, so basically what happens here, the girl's living with her mum and they're very, very rich. So basically we've got the, the, the most eligible bachelor and the most eligible bachelorette, you know, in the time, right? Very, very beautiful and wealthy people. And <laughs> everyone says, well, they're going to get together. They're going to get married. And the mother, um, they're, they're Casa Real. So they're this Spanish mm. aristocratic uh, family. And oh, mother, really Spanish. Okay. Yeah. And so the mother, she says, yes, I want my daughter to marry this man. Um, but the mother's been spending her daughter's inheritance. Um, oh, she, typical. Yeah. Like... So she wants to kind of swindle this man now into like taking his money. And she spends millions per year and they're just lavish and they're just, they don't you know, care about anything other than money. You never really figure out if the daughter is shares the mom's views. Like, is she trying to swindle the man or does she genuinely love him? I think it's unclear, to be honest. Mm. But the mother really, and they get their lawyers, their notaries involved, and one's trying to get as much out of the other family as possible, you know. But the, the, the guy is just a pleasant guy who falls in love with the girl, and he thinks she loves him back. And his friend, de Marseille, there's a big speech of several pages why you shouldn't get married, you know. Mm. But he jumps in anyway, he wants to marry, and, and he, that's it, he, he wants to marry her. And he thinks that she loves him and he thinks that it's all, it's all good. But the mother's just planning some things and people tell me, you got to watch out for this hot blooded Spanish, uh, you know, lady. And um, there's a little bit, you know, she's, she's Spanish. She's also part uh, Creole. And there's a, there's a little bit of like racist sort of references and stereotypes that I'm not going to go into because I don't think they help, but um, because they're, they're living in France, right? So she's, she's um foreign to them in a sense and she's exotic um and yeah look it's, it's essentially it's a story of, of a swindle and it's a story about the two notaries and the families drawing up their marriage contract and what's going in it and 
what who's getting what money and who gets what when who dies and who gets this and that and someone has to sell their diamonds because you've you know squandered all the other money and you owe us money and there's mm. not, it's turning love into capitalism which i really don't like but the poor yeah. the poor man is getting swindled to be honest because at the end of it all i mean and he's very subservient there's one point where he says he thinks he's going to have to go abroad for six years to make money to bring it back just to give to his wife because she's spending all their money, you know? Mm-hmm. And he says, I would, I would rather sweep the floor outside her house for six years just to get a glance at her when she comes to the window. But instead I'll have to go abroad for six years and, you know, work hard and earn money just to give it to her when I get back. And the problem is you really aren't sure if she cares about him at all. It's, it's oh, not no. clear. Her mother definitely doesn't. The mother's definitely using him, but you don't really know about the daughter. Right. Okay. That's unfortunate. Okay. Well, very Balzac, I guess, isn't it? Again, it's but very Balzac. One, it's the one, usual stuff, you know. Well, one person <laughs> loving so much and sacrificing the other person, the other person not appreciating. I mean, this is just—it seems to be very repetitive. And, it is, uh, yeah. But this one, this one's shorter. Variations. Say it's only two hundred and twenty pages, something like that. You know, it's it's a bit shorter. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Sounds great. Have you read awesome. anything else, or am I going to do my last one? Um. I think, no, that you go ahead now. So the last book I read was Samurais of Fukushima. Um, oh. And this was by a certain Brazilian author, Hugo oh, wow. Cucurs. I know that might be surprising. Um, oh, I, love, I, lo- I already love the cosmopolitan vibe of this. <laughs> yeah, right. This is a chap who wanted to write a book, even though, I say, like he wanted to write a book set in Japan, even though he's Brazilian. He lives in the States, I believe. Um, like he's not even living it's it's just a bit of a mismatch of what's going on here but he he hadn't he wasn't an author he just decided i want to write a you know my first book he worked you sold, in it. You sold it you sold it to me already there you the go. whole cost well life. now i add in zombies right you got me <laughs> so these samurai sakuraba and seto they have this kind of falling out because they grew up together but then they've fallen out um, Japan is being plagued by zombies and they're leading a little tribe of people to see if they can survive, essentially. Now, they kill the zombies very easily because they're trained samurais. It's more a yeah. quantity issue. It's not that the zombies are super tough or anything. It's just everywhere they go, they're being attacked by zombies. And then it's <laughs> stories about the characters together and how they're going to survive. They're going to build a new kind of world. They, they visit little different clans that are trying to survive and different things like that. So again, it's a short one. It's only about 240 pages. But uh, it was fun. Yeah, not my usual thing, but quite fun. Okay. Ah, hold on. Two seconds, PJ. I think I hear what? the phone ringing for a second time today. That's unusual. Hey, you're through to Books Boys. You've got Dean on the line. Who's calling? Hi, here is Hugo Kokors, the, the author of uh, Summarize of Fukushima. Summarize of Fukushima. That's awesome, because we were just talking about the, the book there. So, Hugo, this is your first book, am I right? Yes, it's my my first work. Awesome. And how long did it take to to write this? 16. I wrote the uh, I wrote uh, all all the rest in 2018. I think took more or less 6 months to okay. to write there, including research, uh, looking for reference and everything. Sure. And I mean, did you feel that you needed because obviously you're Brazilian and this book's set in Japan. So yes. wh- why did you choose that setting? Did you have some connection with there before or was it just, a, a, you know, a random choice or? Um, I always like the martial arts. Okay. And uh, I think the best place to include some kind of situation involving that would be Japan. Sure. And uh, uh my idea was about a zombie apocalypse anyway, and I was looking for a kind of, of an environment that I haven't seen anything related with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, starting connecting the dots and uh, the Japan looked uh, like a, a, a nice time to do that and uh, the samurai age, the best time to choose. Cool. It's interesting because we have to there's two separate things happening. There's the story about the samurais and obviously you've got the history with, with Seru and Sakuraba, but then despite their story, you know, you've also got this, the samurai part, but also the zombie part. And every now and then we kind of 
I'm just getting lost in the story with the characters. Then I remember, oh, there's a zombie apocalypse happening and suddenly they get attacked by by some zombies, you know? So I think it's quite interesting the way it doesn't just focus just on zombie action. We get a lot of good bits with the characters as well, you know? Uh, yes, I think uh, for me, the, the zombies uh, were important, but in, since I have the idea, it was like the not the most important point in the book. I always like the characters well developed and I think that the zombies only would be something that would make them move in this in the, the the story uh, make them act mm. uh, and uh, the idea that uh, I think that when we have uh, many characters like we have in the book uh, we need to talk more about them to develop them other way we saw like a, a lot of uh, zombie books zombie TV shows that we have like a two or three main characters and the others like it's like a, just a zombie food. Yeah. You know that they will die in some moment and you don't care about them. I try to create a connection with each one of them and make them a little special and make that I think would be better for the, the readers to create a connection. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And the story with, with Sedo and Sakuraba especially, I really like, you know, with them growing up together, but not quite being brothers and one excelling more than the other and that whole history that I think that's really really nice um tell me about the other chap MKG I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right he seems to be not the not the most agreeable uh chap you know he's um he seems to be causing some problems and you know not getting on with the group what was kind of the inspiration for his character um I think that uh I, I always like when we have someone that it's kind of a bad guy, but uh, maybe he will be important in some part of the, the plot. Uh, he, he made a lot of mistakes, but sometime, in some moment he will be like essential. I think like Gollum in Lord of, The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gollum, it's like, uh, it's not the hero. Other, on the other hand, it's like, He's there to to get the the ring from Frodo to create problems, but without uh, Gollum, I think they couldn't uh, destroy the ring in the end. Yeah, yeah, so they needed him in the end, and I suppose with KG yes. in the end, they they think that they need his boats, right? So or his dad's boats, I guess. And that's yes, he, that's he his created use. like a, uh, a reason to survive, a reason to. Uh, to travel across Japan, to mm-hmm. uh, like a, they, he was like a kind of uh, he was offering a hope for them. Yeah, and I think he needed that because he was the least likable person. I think if he didn't have yes. the boats or he didn't have a reason to keep him around, you know, maybe they wouldn't bother. <laughs> yes, they they were stuck with him. They <laughs> if uh, he wasn't important, they could just uh, leave him the yeah in their way or let the zombies kill him. But because of the boats and the idea that uh, only with him they would be able to get that boat, they need to keep him alive. Yeah. And then, of course, there's his insistence that, you know, Kido is his wife, even though, well, they didn't complete the ceremony and she's clearly not interested in him. And he's, yeah. you know, he's insisting that, you know, she's got to go with him and all this. So he, he's not a likable chap. But as you say, it's good to have, you need to have that. You need to have one uh, antagonist, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I think that uh, when you have like zombies, the zombies, most of the time, they are the the main uh, villains of the, the history. But when you have like a cage, he will be like uh, someone that uh, we will keep then all the time our out of the comfort zone because they know that in some moment he can create a a trouble for them. And then we, you know, they, they, they run into other interesting people because we have, they run into the savior and his little uh, cult basically. And then later the new clan, which is different, but in the same way, it's, they've run into a different group of people with a different outlook that, you know, with a different goal. And it's interesting. Um, Tell us about the savior. So is he, a, you know, he's not really a good guy, but in the end he tags along with them. Um, I think about the savior, it's that uh, it's a kind of a character that uh, 
uh, he wasn't doing the, the, the right thing uh, in, a, in a general point of view, but thinking about uh, he was about what uh, he was believing, he were uh, he was doing the right thing. He was doing what uh, uh, he was giving like the message that he wants to give, like in his crazy mind, uh, his the, he needed to purify the, the country. He needed to uh, finish all the the man that was that created the problems in the past and restart again and keeping only the kids and the, the women. But other, uh, thinking about that, he was killing a, a lot of good people that could help, uh, help him. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, it's, it's interesting that he, he gives up relatively quickly. You know, once, once the, the samurais come in and he's kind of like, okay, yeah, that's, that's fair. I'm, I'm beat. You know, <laughs> he doesn't continue his, uh, his journey, you know, to purify. I think he was using more his influence to control the people that could protect him when he needed to protect himself. I think he, he thought, okay, I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, doesn't matter fighting anymore I, I will give up yeah and the last group of course that is the new clan and they they're not looking to purify their their mission is more i guess to to wipe out the zombies in a sense um in a, in a different kind of way than than the savior they don't want to purify the population they just want to fix the zombie problem and yes. i guess in the end if you you know when we get as far as the epilogue i guess they they achieve their goal right oh yeah so my idea with of this was like uh, creating an idea that it's, uh, the zombie apocalypse is something that happens uh, time after time, and because of that, they like uh, it was like it already happened, really happened, and uh, okay, they solved the problem like uh, five hundred years ago, seven hundred years yeah. ago, and and no one remembers anymore. It's like uh, it's never have a it's kind of like a plague or something that that comes you know it's a big problem for a while they deal with it and then it gets forgotten about it by the yeah. next society and this, you know? it started uh, it started looking like uh, it's uh oh it's just a legend no one believes that uh, the zombies were there because no one uh alive alive nowadays uh saw yeah. or, or knew someone that uh, was there in that time but exactly. I, I, my idea was that that uh, created uh, the message that uh, okay, if uh, it would happen in the past, maybe we would never know. Mm-hmm. And we, we might not ever know. That's that's very true. Let me ask you, who's your favorite character? Uh, the book, I think, uh, I like a lot of uh, Sakuraba. Sakuraba is my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Because he has like uh, all uh, his development. He was like a, a abandoned child, and uh, he had a lot of support to overcome that. But uh, everything that he did, he t- always tried to do the right thing. He always yeah, tried. He's to an honorable. He's best. an honorable guy. You know. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's why he's my favorite as well. I like Sato as well because Sato, it's like. A, He's not a kind of a bad or good, not black or white. He's like a, a walks in the gray area. Yeah, he just made some mistakes, maybe, you know. Yeah. Or did, uh, didn't always follow like the a, right path. He had like a dark past, but he always, in the end, he always uh, does the, the right thing. Yeah. So is there going to be another book or... Was this uh you just wanted to do one? You know what's what's happening next? Um, I'm writing another book. It's not related with uh, samurais or, or okay. zombies. Uh, my idea now. I went to the past. My idea now is to go to the future. Ah. Yes, and uh, I'm living in Toronto, and because of that, my idea is to have the the plot here in Toronto. Nice. Like a uh, hundred years in the future. Uh, in a, a world that is not so different that we have nowadays, but uh, with a few 
technological innovations like uh, people doesn't have any weapons anymore. Uh, and uh, would it be like um, the first one, if we think that it's a zombie book, but other way it's like a, a travel book, is a road mm -hmm. book, because they are traveling all the time. Now I'm thinking to make something like it's uh, uh, this topic cyberpunk book with uh, a crime situation. Okay, so it's going to be very different then. Yeah, so I, I I want to include like a few Easter eggs in the the the, the book that uh, who read the first one will be able to to find and identify. And if uh, the person just read this one, we'll be able to understand everything sure. without. Uh, well, why don't you give us a quick plug then? Where can we go and buy, where can the listeners buy Samurai of Fukushima? Uh, I think it's a, a book that will be able to understand a little about the samurai age and how they used to live in that time. Uh, it's some, there's a lot of action, as you expected in any zombie book. Uh, no one in save, uh, is safe in that uh, adventure. Uh, you can lose someone anytime, and uh, there is fight, death, uh, passion, sex, uh, uh, emotion. I think uh, I try to, to write... Uh, uh, as best as possible, each character to create a connection with anyone. I think uh, you can have like a different style, but probably you will find a character that you can identify yourself. That was like my idea. I think it's a, a book that uh, uh, the English uh, edition doesn't have uh, too much uh, reviews yet, but the Portuguese, uh, Portuguese edition, there are more than 50 uh, good reviews on that people are enjoying and i think uh, you you have a a good time reading the book cool and you can get it on amazon right yes on amazon the uh, the ebook paper uh, paperback and a hardcover and you can find the audiobook on audible as well awesome and i'll put a link to your website in the in the show notes as well. Cool. Well, last question. I always ask every sure. author at the end of the interview, if there was one book that you wish you had been the person to write, what would it be? Uh, I love the, the Lord of the Rings. It's one of my favorite books. Because uh, of that, I think if I would have the, the uh, capability to write like a Tolkien, uh, I would be... Uh, realized that I think it would be a great author. I have other Brazilians uh, authors that I think they are great, but I think for me, when I, I got the first time the, the Lord of the Rings, uh, I couldn't stop to read, <laughs> to read that, and I, I, I finished finish it before the, the movies. And when I watched the movies, it was like, okay, it's close, that was I was imagining okay. all the description that uh, Tolkien uh, puts in his books. It's amazing. Yeah, of course. Well, that's why they're very long books. Yeah. <laughs> <Plenty of> description. <laughs> well, guys, I'll put a link, as I said, and everyone can go check out Samurais of Fukushima. Thank you very much for calling into the show. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, I'm I've been listening to your podcast uh, the last few days and enjoying a lot and uh, all the best for you guys and uh, thank you for 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 having me here with you. Awesome. Well, have yourself a good day. You too. Take Thanks. Care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, there we go. Unexpectedly, Hugo himself calling in there. That's Samurai of Fukushima: The Battle of the Dead, uh, and you like, can get that like on, on Amazon now. I like the title. I have to say, I like the title. It's a very interesting book. A lot of different things happening. PJ, this has been a very long episode, um, but shall we quickly wrap up with our recommendations? Indeed. Um... Okay, well, first we'll do our, an ad for another great podcast that we always do, and then we'll come back with our recommendations. Hey! 
welcome to 100 Horrors, a comedy podcast that seeks to rank the best 100 horror films of all time, as dictated to us by a poster that one of us owns. Every week we bicker over another film in an attempt to give it an overall scare factor and secure its place in the 100 Horrors list. With features such as... And what would you say to them at the We take a light-hearted approach to horror cinema so that it can be enjoyed by even the most squeamish of listeners. So whether you're the person who's never seen a horror film in their life or the person who has a tattoo of Leatherface on the right ass cheek, there's something to be enjoyed in every episode of 100 Horrors! <laughs> Would you like to go first? What do you recommend? Sure. I'm going to keep this uh, short and sweet. I'm not going to go into any detail. I recommend, in general, the books of John Grisham. Um, he's a very popular author, you know, a lot of best-selling stuff. It's legal fiction. I've read a lot of them in my younger days. I can't. They're all the same, so I can't remember anyone over the others. Um, but they're well-researched legal thrillers. It's usually there's a, there's a particular court case or someone working in a lawyer's office. And it's a crime thriller, but, you know, focusing more on the procedures of the legal issues than the cool detective out in the street. It's not a Poirot, you know, it's more what happens after Poirot yeah. in, in the courts type thing. Um, okay. There, 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 there's a lot of them. And I would say, you know, I'd recommend just pick a random one and give them a try. Okay. And that's it. Oh, I, re- I recommend, to keep it short uh, as well, I recommend uh, The Reader by Ben Hatch Link. Uh, a philosophy of law teacher in Berlin who wrote this novel, um, which is about set, set just after Second World War in Germany, about a young, I, I, I was gonna say a young man, but he's essentially still a teenager falling in love with an older lady. Uh, well, and really they have this lovely relationship, but they they get separated and they re meet again, where he's a law student. Where, um, dealing with the trials of Nuremberg and everything that happened during the Nazi time. And he actually meets Hannah, this older woman again, who was, uh, who was a Nazi, uh, who worked in, with the Nazis and becomes really a philosophical novel of law, literally. Uh, well, as well, a great romantic read and he's torn between the feelings he has for her, the age gap, and ultimately the dilemma of her having dealt in the Nazis executions and but kind of like unwillingly you know not unwillingly but kind of like showing was she truly evil or was she just a product of her circumstances mm-hmm, she couldn't help mm-hmm. but be an amazing book like moral issues like that you know you can't always blame someone when they it's how they the, the, they're a product of their environment and their their upbringing and all the rest of it you know and 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 it's a it's a brilliant read beautifully written Ben Hatchling the reader Okay, well, that's our recommendations. Guys, if you want to get in touch, booksboys at hotmail.com or hit us up on the social media and all of our links are on booksboys.com, of course. PJ, I thought we'd close this episode with a nice song, as always. Do you think it's time to tame this? Shall we play your, your Taming of the Shrew song? I think it is time to tame this. Shrew you. Let's do it. I'll, I'll hit oh, the, yeah. the song and... That's basically it. So little Alfred's with us here. He's gonna he's gonna spin the record, and then we'll play our closing credits. And we'll be back in about a month. See us. Tell me what you say You just try to curve my mind Try to control me That day I'll call me sweet Kate I'm a woman of power, power Don't tell me what to do Even if I say the things you like You can't control me Woman's heart and ain't your shrew. 
Boys was presented by The Dean and PJ Burke in association with Thaddeus Penguin Productions. <laughs> this episode was brought to you by our sponsor, bookorganizers.gov. If you would like to get in touch, you can email us 
at booksboys at hotmail.com or visit us at booksboys.com. The intro uses Driving in the 70s from the Of Soundtracks and Garage Bands EP by Trapdoor. And the outro uses Dog's Light by Bravo Max from the album of the same name. All music used is either podsafe or used with permission. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash booksboys, get the show early, and all of our bonus booth fan the boys shows. And you can also check out our music on Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you kindly for listening to us. Please tell your friends, and come back next time for another episode of Books Boys. Read some books! Oh my god, this is way too long. Let's, uh, I don't gotta read too much, let's cut it down. Is this a holiday? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.